0: we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us. As we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. Sorry for the delay on this episode. The reason for that is I've had a flu type thing. Uh, The last few days, I'm a lot better now, but I still am sick, so when I'm done with this episode, I'll probably either lie on the bed or the floor, whichever is closer, and that's unfortunately the floor. So uh, anyway, we're going to be getting into a very, very, very important topic, and it's one that Christians need to be familiar with, and it's the idea of who Christ is. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at a specific passage in Colossians, And we're going to pretty much focus on what it means for Jesus to be the uh, visible God, the image of the invisible God. And we're going to show this not only from the the New Testament, but we're going to show this idea in the Old Testament with some concepts you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, But I promise you, you're probably going to learn some stuff that you may not have previously known. So this is an incredibly interesting topic. Like like I said, we're going to be in Colossians 1. So if you have a Bible... Uh, I would go to Colossians 1.15. We're going to be around that area, and I'm going to do my best to stay on topic here. This is something I love to talk about, and there's tons of different directions we can go, but I'm going to reference a lot of things while trying to stay on this one topic and have everything center around that. So uh, just so you know that. And before we do that... Make sure you follow The Universe Next Door wherever you're listening. If you just hit follow, it'll go a long way because we'll have an idea of who's listening. But also, you'll be alerted uh, of every new episode at 6 p.m. on Monday nights, which is when they generally come out unless I'm sick. So uh, go ahead and hit follow. And thank you so much for those of you who listen, whether you're new or whether you've been listening for years. Um, it really means a lot, and it goes a long way. And you sharing these episodes is the best way to uh, to get the word out there, to get this podcast out there. And of course, we exist to help people defend the faith, to help you articulate the faith in conversations and all that kind of thing. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do that. Now, like I said, we're going to be focusing on a concept, but also on a passage of scripture. And I want to link a video in the description below that if you wouldn't mind watching when you're finished, I think will go a long way. And it's a video of John Lennox uh, that, that came out probably a few years ago. And basically what he was talking about is when he was younger, he was really attracted to all the apologetics arguments. And he said at times he actually, he started to find them more interesting than the Bible, that he wanted to find these clever arguments and he wanted to listen to people, defend the faith. And uh, but he actually found them more interesting than Scripture. And, and later on, he realized how much of a mistake that was. And he said, if you want to grow in godliness, if you want to know Christ, you have to spend time in Scripture. Just read it and read it and read it. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. That's that's a huge part of what apologetics is. And it not only is it a part of what apologetics is, but apologetics should center around Scripture. It's so easy to get carried away Uh, With arguments of God's existence and whatever argument it might be, and and it's easy to forget why we're actually doing it. So, when we have a conversation with somebody, when we're defending the faith, we're defending the truth of the gospel because we want to make Christ known, we want to glorify his name, and we want to see people uh, put their faith in Christ and spend an eternity with him. So, it's important that we spend time not only on all these different arguments, but also on Christ himself and what scripture has to say about him, because if we don't know that, I mean, what are we even defending? So we're going to go to Colossians 1, and like I said, this is one of the most important books of the Bible. Uh, we'll read what we're basically going to be talking about today. I'll read a little more just so you can get some idea here, uh, and then I'll give a little bit of the background of what's going on in Colossians, because it really is a crazy story. Uh, so Colossians 1.15, starting here, uh, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Both of those words are key words we're going to talk about, uh, image and firstborn. We're going to talk about uh, invisible too. But firstborn does not mean what you think it means. It does not mean born first. So we're going to get into that a little bit later. It continues on in verse 16. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and all things hold to- and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. There's that term again. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's another key. All of his fullness dwells in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So, as I said, there's a few keys here that we're going to focus on. We're mainly going to focus on the son being the image of the invisible God, and we're going to see what that looks like in the Old Testament, and also that term firstborn. But we also see here that all things were created in him and through him. So Jesus, of course, is not created. Uh, He is not a demigod where. Such as in the movie Moana, I I can't remember the guy's name, Maui, I think, that The Rock played. Well, he was a demigod. He's like this half-god, half-man, half-Greek-god kind of thing. Jesus is not that. So Jesus is truly God, and he's truly man. He is not created. Uh, He is the eternal God who became man who took on flesh. The word became flesh is what we see in John 1.14. We're going to reference John a little bit too here. But Jesus is the eternal God who became flesh. So he's truly God, truly man. You've probably heard it put fully God and fully man. And that's a helpful thing for us to grasp. It's a helpful way to put it, even though it doesn't technically make sense to say something's fully this and fully that. So I prefer the term truly God and truly man. I think that's the, the more correct term. But the idea is that he's fully God, And he's fully man in one. He's two persons. I'm sorry, two natures, one person. He's not two persons. He's two natures, God and man, but he's one person. And so that's the the, the vague, broad idea of who Christ is. And there's nobody that we can compare him to. But he is God who became man. He wasn't putting on a man costume. He wasn't just manifesting himself in the flesh. God actually became man and was born as a human being. So let's kind of zoom into some of these terms here to see what's going on. And the first one is the sun is the image of the invisible God. Uh, there's a very similar passage in Hebrews that talks about this, where uh, it's, it's image or imprint. Some translations have the imprint, the exact imprint of God's nature, and he is the image of the invisible God. So, first of all, the reason Paul is, is having to say all of this, the reason he's having to tell them that Jesus is the Son, the image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn, he's greater than everybody, he created all things, uh, the reason for this is that there's a very unique situation going on in Colossae to where he's writing. Um, it's often been referred to as the Colossian heresy, and there's some debate over what exactly that is. But what's pretty clear is that during the Old and New Testament, there's what's called the interten- intertestamental period. And in the intertestamental period, uh, be- people basically became obsessed with angels. That's when the Apocrypha was written. That's when the Book of Enoch, or technically the Books of Enoch, because it is there are three books. Uh, but that's when the Book of Enoch was, was written, which talks a lot about... Um, angels, and specifically the watchers, if you've studied Daniel, or if you look back at uh, Mesopotamian and Babylonian history, that's where a lot of this comes from, because they were immersed in that culture for many years uh, in Babylon, and of course they brought a lot of that with them. And so there was like this obsession with angels in the intertestamental period, and so now what you have in Colossae is you have all these pagan rituals where they're going to temples and doing all kinds of weird ecstatic Uh, worship involving sexual things and all kinds of stuff. So you have this totally pagan culture, and then you have these Jewish mystics come and merge their ideas with the pagan culture. Uh, And so you get this idea of, of the pagan culture worshiping planets and stars and believing they have power, what's referred to as the elemental spirits of the world in Colossians. And so they're doing all of these these crazy rituals. They believe uh, that the, the spirits are guiding their destiny, that they have control, or, or not the spirits, but the planets and the stars are guiding their destiny and have control over them. And it's not incredibly different from what you see today, uh, what was happening in Colossae, because it's not much different than us looking at horoscopes and believing they're going to tell us uh, how our day is going to be. Uh, or looking at astrology and thinking it has some sort of power. We do the same thing today. Well, I shouldn't say we, but many people do the same thing today. And so that's what's going on in Colossians at a much more dramatic extent than what we're describing here. But then you have these Jewish teachers, or quote-unquote Jewish teachers, and they're bringing in this angel stuff. And so you have this this idea of the planets and the stars and the, the, the forces having power, and then you combine that with angels, and so it turns into this weird mystic angel worship. So at least in a vague sense, that's what's going on here in the book of Colossians. They're worshiping these angels. They believe the only way to appease them and to turn their anger away uh, is by self-harm, by worshiping them. And so that's what they're doing in Colossae. You have these Jewish mystics who are teaching this crazy religion, that you have to hurt yourself and that you have to please and, and worship these angels in, in order to turn their anger away. So this is like the main point of Paul's writing. What he's showing them is that you do not need angels. You do not need to worship angels. Angels worship Christ. So the purpose of this whole book, the four chapter letter here, is that Christ is supreme over all creation. He created all things. All things are created for him and through him. He's before all things. He holds all things together. He is the head of the church, not an angel, not a teacher, not anything else, and that he has supremacy in everything. Why? Because he is God, and we're going to show how these terms here are describing that he is God. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Uh, And he is the firstborn from among the dead. So he's supreme in all these areas. He's supreme over creation. He's supreme over everything. He alone, not, not injuring yourself, not pleasing these angels, but he alone is the only one who could provide atonement, who could reconcile all things to himself, and could make peace through his blood shed on the cross. So let's get back to that idea of the sun being the image of the invisible God and why Paul's pointing this out. Uh, while also keeping in mind that Paul, while we're going to be looking at the Old Testament here, he would have done the same thing. Keep in mind that Paul was a Pharisee. They had to have huge portions of the Torah and the Tanakh memorized. They knew their, their, their Old Testament in and out. And so Paul's constantly in the new testament he's referring back to the old testament all the time and there's actually a number of places where you can look at the old the the new testament writing that he's he's proposing here and you can see him almost just recrafting passages from the old testament because he uses it that much and that clearly so let's look at the idea of the sun being the image of the invisible god Um, let's start here at genesis 15 and this is the story of Abraham, which which basically is the beginning of Israel. It technically starts in twelve with with Abraham, but uh, or Abram at this point. But if we look at Genesis fifteen, we see something really interesting here. Um, Abram is is having a vision, but there's a specific detail that we need to recognize in verse one of of chapter fifteen. It says, "After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision." So let's pause real quick. The word came to Abram in a vision. Now words don't come to people in a vision. A vision is when you actually see something. So if he's hearing something just audibly, that wouldn't be described as a vision. but what it says is the word came to Abram in a vision. Now this is the same word from John 1 which might be familiar to you as Jesus, right? The Word became man, the word or b- became flesh, the Word was God and was with God. And so this is that same term being used here, word. Uh, In the New Testament, the term for word is logos. But John didn't just pull this out of nowhere. John knew his Old Testament very well, that the word became flesh. Well, here in the Old Testament, this is Jesus as the visible God. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one, will, the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And then again, we see, then the word of the Lord came to him. So now the word of the Lord comes to him. And remember, this isn't just a phrase coming him. This isn't just an audible thing coming to him, because we see the word of the Lord came to him, and then in verse 5, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars." If indeed you can count them, uh, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So the word of the Lord takes Abram outside. This is not something that words do. This isn't something that an audible message from God would do. This is God actually standing in front of him and taking him outside. And we see something similar in 1 Samuel 3 uh, with the story of Samuel where where the, the Lord is standing there and calling him. If you look at the detail in that text, it's the Lord is standing there. And what I'm getting at, we'll go through a few more examples here, but what I'm getting at is that Jesus was always the visible Yahweh. In fact, in Jewish uh, theology, there was, a, there was a concept known as the two powers in heaven. And I'm going to show you a couple of the places where this comes from. Uh, but the two powers of heaven is basically this idea that there's a Yahweh in heaven and that there's a Yahweh on earth. And they're both, they're both Yahweh. (laughs) So it's, it's basically, I think God preparing the Jewish people for the coming of the Messiah. He's preparing them for the idea of the Trinity, which by the way is evident throughout the Old Testament as well. Uh, But in Judaism, there was this idea called the two powers of heaven, and it was held by Jewish people up until after the time of Christ in the second century, and then it was considered forbidden knowledge, or it was considered heresy. But it wasn't until after Christ came, because there's no way they could explain the two powers of heaven idea, which we'll break down a little bit here in a second. There's no way they could explain that while excluding Christ because of how specifically he fulfilled it and brought that to light. It's kind of like if you go visit a synagogue today, if you have a Jewish friend, they don't read Isaiah 53. They skip that whole section of Isaiah 52 and 53 because it's so specific to Christ that people would have just thought that Christians came and altered the text after, he, after Christ came and died and resurrected because the prophecies in Isaiah 53 are so specific. Uh, They just don't read them because there's no way to explain it and it causes more trouble than anything in Judaism. So this is the same kind of thing where this two powers in heaven idea uh, was prominent in Judaism. It was widely held. It was what they knew and what they saw the scripture as until Christ came. And there's no way they could have explained it and, and also said that he wasn't the Messiah at the same time. So an example of this is if we go to uh, if we go to Genesis 19, and this is when they, when God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah after, after he's pleaded with, and, uh, and finally he's going to wipe them out. If we look at verse 23 here, uh, it says, By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So you have this idea here of the Yahweh on earth raining down fire from the Yahweh in heaven. There's clearly two figures being mentioned here, and that's intentional. So you have the Yahweh on earth, and you have the Yahweh in heaven. Uh, You have the same thing with the angel of the Lord, where the angel of the Lord, I believe, I'm scripturally convinced that the angel of the Lord is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And so it's the same thing with this two uh, two powers of heaven thing, There's the Yahweh on earth, and there's the Yahweh in heaven. So there's this idea where clearly, clearly in Jewish literature and in the Old Testament, there's only one God. That's the Shema in in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There's only one God. And somehow here in Genesis 19, you have this idea of two Yahwehs, the Yahweh on earth and the Yahweh in heaven. And so they couldn't explain this away, and they just decided, no, that's heresy now. Uh, We're not going to hold to that anymore. With no good reason to do so. So when Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, this is what he's talking about here. This isn't a new invention. God had used this. God had manifested himself as man many times in the Old Testament when he wrestled with Jacob here in, uh, well, right before this in Genesis 18, actually, you have the three angels, but one of them is clearly referred to um, as Yahweh, as God. And in fact, when the two angels had gone on their way Abraham stood there and remained in order to talk to Yahweh, in order to talk to the Lord. Uh, I don't think the Trinity is in mind here in Genesis 18, because clearly two of them are angels. But if we look at Genesis 18, um, we have these these three figures here. Uh, And if we kind of zoom in on verse uh, 22, we can see this. You have three figures total. And then when it says, the men turned away and went toward Sodom, that was the two angels, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? So this is when Abraham starts pleading with the Lord. <clears throat> and then, of course, it, it, verse 26, the Lord responds. It said, the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So you have this conversation after the two angels walk away, you still have the one Yahweh, the the figure of the image of the invisible God here, and Abraham's having a conversation with him, he's clearly referred to as Yahweh, as the Lord. And so this is another example of the Lord being manifest, Yahweh being manifest and appearing to people physically and literally in front of them. And of course, this again is what Paul refers to as the image of the invisible God. Remember, Christ Christ is eternally God. He did not become God. And what's interesting is when we look at all of the times that the Lord appears to someone in a vision, but it specifically says the word appeared to him in a vision, that's the same thing what we see in John 1. He knew his Old Testament. And so when John talks about the word, the logos, it, it ties together here in Colossians, because keep in mind that in chapter 2, Paul actually says that in Christ is hidden all knowledge and wisdom. All knowledge and wisdom is hidden in Christ. Why? Because Christ is supreme over everything, including knowledge and wisdom, as we see here. So he's supreme over creation, he's supreme over angels, he's supreme over everything, and he's now supreme over knowledge and wisdom, he's king of everything. So his main point is Christ is supreme, but it's the same idea here that we see in John that Christ is the Logos, the Word, or uh, as you can translate it, the intelligence. He is the all-knowing intelligence of the universe. He is the Logos. And so all wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him, as Paul points out in chapter 2 here. So he is the intelligence, the Logos, and this is the same same term that we see in the Old Testament, that he is the Word of God. Christ is the Word of God. He is the image of the invisible God. Um, Now we also see a hint of this two powers in heaven stuff when we look at Psalm 110, that the Lord said to my Lord, I'll make you... Uh, a footstool for your enemies. So the Lord says, "My Lord says to the Lord, or the Lord says to my Lord." There again, you see this two Yahwehs idea, and this is something that's present throughout the Old Testament. Um, I think the purpose of that is to is to prepare the Jewish people for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of God actually becoming man, becoming flesh, taking on flesh. And as we said back at the beginning of the episode, He's not just manifesting Himself as a human in the New Testament. 2,000 years ago, the eternal God actually became man. That means he took on everything that a human takes on because he truly became human. He had a soul. Uh, That means he could feel pain and sorrow. That means he would get tired. It means he would get hungry. Now, angels do some of these things. Uh, Even the example we just looked at in Genesis 18. Well, those angels ate with Abraham, including Yahweh, uh, but that certainly doesn't mean that they have to. You know, it's like when they're offering grain sacrifices and bread sacrifices and all that to God, it's not like he he's having them do it because he's hungry. He doesn't have to eat that food. Of course, they had the ability, uh, as we can see in Scripture. But Jesus actually would have gotten hungry. He actually would have had to rest. He would have had to get tired. And so we see this um, throughout the New Testament. He is truly human. Hebrews tells us that he... he has suffered every way that we can, every way that's known to man because he is truly human. And of course, he's also, he's also truly God. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. He is the visible Yahweh that's always existed. Now, let's look at another example. Uh, this is from Genesis 32. It's probably a passage that you're familiar with or story that you're familiar with. Uh, but it's, it's when Jacob is wrestling with God. So it says that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man, see a man, wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Jacob's asking this man for a blessing, which is obviously implying he's more than a man. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. So he changes his name and he says, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. So this struggle Jacob's having is with God, and we'll actually show something that really makes that clear in a moment, and and really I think kind of closes the deal with the angel of the Lord being Yahweh. Um, but he said, but Jacob says, "Please tell me your name." But he replied, "Why do you ask my name?" Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, "It is because I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared." So there's really no there's really no question here. Uh, that Jacob is wrestling with God. He's not just wrestling with with simply an angel uh, or just a man, but it's with God. We see we see this all throughout the story here. Um, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Uh, he blesses him. He God Himself says, "You have struggled with God," and so there's no question here that Jacob is wrestling with God. But when we take this this angel of the Lord concept as well, and we and we take this wrestling with God concept, and we go to to Genesis 48, uh, starting at verse 15, this is when Jacob is now blessing his son Joseph. It says, then he blessed Joseph and said, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. So let's just stop here for a second. May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully. Clearly he's talking about Yahweh, right? He's talking about God. And then he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. So unmistakably, he's blessing Joseph and he's talking about God. And then this is where it all ties together. So the God, has been my sh- the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they uh, greatly increase on the earth. So here we have it that the God who has been his shepherd, the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, is the angel who has delivered me from all harm. Now, of course, this is the same angel who would go on to uh, lead the people out of Egypt in the Exodus. The angel of the Lord led them out of Egypt. Yahweh led them out of Egypt. So we know that the angel of the Lord is referred to as or that Yahweh is referred to as the angel of the Lord. He is the visible God. He is the God that comes down in manifest form and speaks to people and eats to people and wrestles with people and talks to people. He is Yahweh. And there's this two powers of heaven idea, again, kind of coming to fruition, where you have the Yahweh in heaven and you have the Yahweh on earth. Well, the angel of the Lord or the Yahweh on earth is Jesus Christ. He's eternal. His, his role has always been the manifest God. Well, now 2,000 years of, ago, of course, he became man. He became flesh. He took on flesh. The Word became flesh, and he, he came and lived a full human life. Uh, he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead. All while, of course, he is God, he's also human. And so he became flesh, but he's always been the manifest God. He is the angel of the Lord. So remember, Jesus being the visible Yahweh, the image of the invisible God, he's not just a picture of him as an image. He's not just a uh, some kind of remake. There's no such thing. We're told all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah, that there is none like God. So you can't just say he's like God like a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon might say, or a Mormon would say he became a God, a Jehovah's Witness would say he's like God. Well, that doesn't fit with the text. There is no one like God. He is the visible Yahweh he is the image of the invisible God now to circle back and kind of tie this together let's look at John 8 and of course this is going to be Jesus talking you've probably heard this if you've been reading the Bible for a little while uh, because this is this is one of the most important passages the New Testament so Jesus is going back and forth here with the Jews who want to kill him uh, because of blasphemy or, or what they're claiming to be blasphemy, which, by the way, if anyone you've ever known has, has brought up the objection or might later bring up the objection that Jesus never claimed to be God— it is literally like a claim he makes in almost everything he's ever said. Uh, and especially if you look at it compared to the Old Testament and with what the Jewish people would have known, you can literally go to almost any story in the New Testament and show that Jesus is claiming to be God. And in fact, he, he they attempted to kill him many times for claiming to be God and that ultimately did kill him for claiming to be God. So if you ever get that question or that, uh, or that concern come up, just that's an easy one to answer. But let's look at John 8, starting in verse... 54, where the Jews want to kill him because he is claiming to be God, and they clearly understand that. So Jesus replies, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. And time out, just two chapters later, is when he says, um, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, and they tried to kill him again because they knew exactly what he was saying. Um, and then of course, in chapter six, he says, he's the bread of life. And so there's a claim in like every chapter of John, but so it's the father who glorifies him. Verse 55, though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. And now here's where, here's where we get to tie it together here. Your father, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? And they'll hear, here's what Jesus says. Here's the fireworks. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And of course, they picked up stones and tried to kill him, and Jesus gets away. So what does Jesus do here? He tells them, not only are I and the Father one, not only is he the one who glorifies me, which is a, a completely blasphemous claim by anybody who isn't God, But he says, your father Abraham, I'm the one who called him. He saw me and he rejoiced at my day. He saw it and he was glad. Why? Because Jesus is the one who appears to Abraham in Genesis 15. It's the word appears to him and the word brings him outside. And Jesus is making this clear to the Jews here by telling them before Abraham was, I am which, of course, is the term that he gives to uh, Moses to tell the Egyptians who sent him, tell them, I am sent you. So Jesus is not only making a huge claim to divinity here, a huge claim to be God, the most clear claim he probably could have made to the Jewish people is saying, I am. But he's also telling him, your father Abraham rejoiced that he saw my day. He was glad that he got to see my day. So Jesus, as the image of the invisible God of the New Testament, is the same Jesus, is the same God who was manifest in the Old Testament. And here we have it. This is, this is proof. <laughs> He's telling us himself. I'm the one who called Abraham. So the Son is the image of the invisible God, the visible Yahweh and the invisible Yahweh. And then that second term that we have here is that he is the firstborn over all creation. So this idea of firstborn, as we said at the beginning of the episode, it does not mean what it sounds like. Firstborn does not mean born first. The idea here of the term used is preeminent. And it goes along with Paul's theme that he's making here, that he's supreme over everything, um, that he is greater than everything, that he is sufficient. So it's this, the same theme that we have running through the book of Colossians, that kind of like what we see in 18, that he might have supremacy over all things. Well, the Son is preeminent over all creation. And then, of course, even if, you, even if you thought up to this point uh, that firstborn meant born first, it's not going to make sense once you get to verse 16, because then in verse 16, it says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, which are angels and, and spiritual beings. All things have been created through him and for him. He is, be- he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So uh, again, this term does not mean born first. It wouldn't make sense here because he wasn't born. He's not created. On the other hand, he created everything. So Jesus is not created. He is the creator of everything. So firstborn means preeminent. It means supreme. It means the greatest. um, And that's virtually unanimously agreed upon. Uh, That's just what the term means that's used here. So he created all things for himself. He's greater than all things. And he is supreme over all things. Uh, and in fact, this is the same term that God uses to describe Israel. Um, he calls Israel his firstborn. And of course, the idea of firstborn is that they are the chosen ones. They are the greatest inheritance. They're his inheritance. All of the other nations were given away to be under lesser Elohim, uh, starting at the Tower of Babel. And we see that in, uh, in Psalm 82. And we'll get into all of that another day. That's going to be a whole other thing with the divine council stuff and all that. But Israel is God's inheritance. So Israel is his firstborn, and we see that in Exodus 4.22, and also Israel is his son. Now, of course, Israel is literally neither of those things, right? If we're looking at this in a literal sense, well, his son can't be a nation. um, So he's using this as a term to help us understand. And of course, if you're going to take firstborn as meaning born first, which is what the term itself doesn't mean. Well, that doesn't make sense either because Israel was not the first nation created. So Israel was God's firstborn, meaning Israel is the nation that he chose as the inheritance for himself. He chose it as the nation the Messiah would come through. And so he chose, he chose this nation to be the greatest nation, to have preeminence and to be supreme over the others because Yahweh is their God. He's the one ruling it. He's their king and he's the one guiding them. He called them out of Egypt and embarrassed the Egyptian gods. Um, he he split the Red Sea and allowed them to come through. He is the one who's guiding Israel throughout their journey in the desert into Mount Sinai and finally through the, the conquest of Joshua into the Promised Land. Uh, he is the one who chose them to be preeminent to be his firstborn. Not his born first, but his firstborn. And remember that Paul's having to emphasize this point Uh, Because the people in Colossae are going off and they're worshiping angels and they're doing all this crazy stuff to appease angels when he's saying, stop doing that. Christ is supreme. And so when you look at the book of Colossians, basically every chapter he's going through and showing how uh, Christ is supreme over everything. It's kind of, like, kind of like what we see in Hebrews, but for a different reason. In Hebrews, of course, they're still wanting to do sacrifices because the temple was not yet destroyed. And he shows that Jesus is greater than the high priest. He's a true high priest. He's greater than angels. Uh, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than Melchizedek. We see all of this uh, in the book of Hebrews. But in Colossians, he's doing this for a different reason. It's because they're worshiping these created beings as if they have power over them, which they don't. And this will all make more sense, too, when we get into the divine counsel stuff later, because uh, these angels do exist, and they, they shouldn't be accepting worship, but they were. Uh, and so he's showing them that you do not need to do that. Only Christ, in the last verse of this paragraph, in, in fifteen verse 15 through 20 in Colossians 1, only Christ is the one who can reconcile all things to himself. He is the one who God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So in 19, all God's fullness dwells in Christ. Why? Because he's truly God and he's truly man. Remember, he's not a demigod. It's not some of God's fullness dwelling in him. Um, It's not a little bit of God. That doesn't exist. But it was God's fullness dwelling in him because he is fully or truly God. This is also a good good, uh, passage to have in the back of your mind if you know any Mormon people. If you have friends who might attend... uh, a Mormon tabernacle, you can share this passage with them. Uh, by the way, they refer to themselves as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, so they usually don't call themselves Mormons. Um, it'd be probably a lot easier to find them and talk to them that way. Uh, but this is a good passage to have handy because Mormons believe that Jesus and Lucifer, Satan, were brothers, uh, which is which is hugely demonstrably unbiblical. But this is a perfect passage to go to because what we see here is not only are Satan and Jesus not brothers. But Jesus created Satan. He created all thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things on heaven and on earth. So Jesus actually created Satan. Of course, he created him as an angel. Um, He created him to be a member of the divine council. He created him to serve God. And we'll do this in another thing too, but you can see in... Uh, in Ezekiel 28 that he was actually a guardian cherub. He was, he was there to guard the throne of God. And instead he rebelled. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be higher in authority. And so God threw him out of heaven. Um, but. But originally, Jesus is the one who created Satan in order to glorify him and to serve him, which, of course, he didn't do. So Satan and Jesus are not brothers. Jesus is not created. All of this is made clear in a number of places in the New Testament um, and and in the Old, as we've seen. But especially in the book of Colossians, this is a great book um, for Christology or the study of Christ because it tells us a lot about who he is. And even in this book, there's a lot more than this. We're going over we, we went over kind of the main Christology passage in this book. Uh, but even this passage itself, I mean we could unload a lot more because there's a lot more here. And so um, yeah, Colossians is a great book to study if you want to know more about the character of Christ. And it's only four chapters. I mean, you could go and read all four chapters of this book tonight if you wanted to, and then you could just start studying it verse by verse. You could read commentaries. You could watch videos about it. Um, If anybody's interested or if anybody has specific questions, you can send them to information at apologetics.org, and we'd be happy to answer your questions as well. Whether it's on the air or if it doesn't fit in with anything, then we'll just answer it over email. But I will respond to your questions. I love when people ask questions, and so feel more than free to do that and thank you so much for listening i'd love to talk about this more and, and come up with some more stuff here but uh, i am about out of breath and i'm sweating so i'm gonna go lay down and i wanted to thank you once again for listening to the universe next door we'll see you back here next monday night at 6 p.m to talk about discipleship and how that ties in with apologetics we'll have a great week